Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo, an investor at Village Global, and I'm here with my co-host Ian Cinnamon. Welcome to SolarPunk. In this podcast, we cover topics related to space and defense and discuss how technology can contribute to a better and safer world. Today on Village Global Solar Punk, we are joined with Laura Crabtree, the founder and CEO of Epsilon 3. Laura was one of the crew operations and resource engineers who helped put the United States back in the human spaceflight business. Among the initial members of the operations team for SpaceX's Dragon spacecraft, she was also on console for the first Dragon mission in 2010, the first mission to the International Space Station in 2012, and part of the commercial crew contract over the next decade, including the mission that delivered astronauts to the ISS in 2020. During that mission, Laura was the lead trainer for the crew and one of the core operators who communicated to and advocated for the crew during the free flight. Laura's proudest moment was receiving a call on her personal cell phone from astronaut Doug Hurley when he was orbiting above the Earth and operating both the first commercial cargo and crew vehicles in free flight. During her time at SpaceX, Laura was also part of the early F9 recovery, Dragon recovery, and Dragon operations teams. She was responsible for crew and ground operator flight training, flight software test, ConOps development, and simulator design. Over the years, Laura authored, tested, and executed hundreds of procedures for both ground operation teams and crew onboard Dragon. Laura began her career at Northrop Grumman, working various programs for DARPA and other DoD customers. She has a bachelor's in astronautical engineering and a master's in systems architecture, both from USC here in Los Angeles. Laura, welcome to Village Global Solar Punk. Thanks so much for joining us. What an amazing background. Thanks, Ian. Um, Yeah, it's a fun, wild ride for the last number of years. So you've gone really deep in space. Um, I mean, that is quite an amazing background. Where did this love of space come from? Why space? How did you get into the place you're in now? There is a long history of that. I, it, it starts. It starts with, I guess, the very beginning when I I just watched a lot of the shuttle launches when I was a kid. I I would like get up early. I, I remember all of them um, that I watched in the early days, and I put up you know glow in the dark stars on my ceiling, and I looked up at the stars, and I tried to map the constellations, and so many um, memories of space. And then when I was looking at universities. My mom said, you know, what, what interests you? And I thought, well, I like space. That's what I want to do. And, and I said, I want to be an astronaut. And she said, well, do you want to do some kind of engineering? And I said, yeah, I'm going to do space. Um, So it was between chemical engineering and and astronautics. And clearly you all know what I chose. Um, (laughs) And then I guess I just never looked back. I, I always had a love for the space business and what, kind of opportunities it could open up. And then um, after I got into it, I basically never wanted to leave. Well, you left SpaceX to go start Epsilon 3. So that's not leaving the industry, but it left this amazing career that we just talked about. What got you to leave after all of those amazing accomplishments? And uh, give us a little background on what Epsilon 3 is. Sure. So Epsilon 3 is a web-based procedure platform to help space companies fuel, basically run their billion dollar missions and not make mistakes. So we are deep in process, planning, execution, traceability of operations. So it helps 
companies kind of organize around their operation, which traditionally has been sort of an afterthought. So we are supporting a lot of different companies that you may have heard about and super excited to bring the capabilities that we're offering to market. You know, leaving SpaceX, I mean, it's um, it's a, a place that most people work for a number of years. And, and I mean, I'm sure a lot of people have talked about it, but uh, one of my friends described it as a pressure cooker. It is a place where you basically dive headfirst into literally everything you can think of. And while I was there, I you know started dating my husband, got married, had two kids, and it was my identity. So you know, leaving was was very hard, mm-hmm. and I had to basically like unwrap myself from everything that was SpaceX and figure out what I wanted from there. And that's when I decided to found Epsilon Three. That's amazing. And Laura, on that point. You know, I, I've we Ian and I have heard a lot of people, and I'm sure you have as well, say that SpaceX's biggest contribution to the industry and to humanity may not even be SpaceX, SpaceX itself, but all the amazing <laughs> people that are leaving to start companies in this industry. Um, what was it, in your perspective, that made the talent, the culture, and the company itself so special? And, and now we have like hundreds of individuals like you that are excellent in our starting companies. I think it's the the lack of fear of failure. It's not that failure is unacceptable. It's that failure is okay. And it's a means to learn and grow. Um, And it's also this kind of thinking outside of the box and not listening to people when they say you can't do something. Traditional aerospace, you have a plan and the plan is, is executed exactly from start to finish, maybe not exactly, but very closely from start to finish, you have a budget, you follow the budget. At SpaceX, nobody ever talks about budget. We talk about schedule, we talk about risk, we talk about technical uh, problems. And the budget is something that comes into play as soon as you like completely blow things out of the water. I mean, it's not like we don't talk about it, but we didn't talk about it a lot. And so I think that sort of mentality is what you're seeing now in the industry, which is awesome. I love it. And I think we're all in agreement that space is just vital for our country for many reasons, both for ambition, um, for optimism, but also for defense, for geopolitics, and many other things. From a, a defense technology pride perspective, et cetera, right? Um, for you personally, why is space so important? Oh, man. Well, There are so many things that we're doing in space that maybe people don't know about. I was at a conference last week uh, for space called Space Symposium. And at the conference, there were protesters and the protesters were were saying, you know, no more satellites, no more this. And, And all I could think was, do they know what those satellites are enabling? They have a cell phone in their hand, yet they're protesting space. And the satellite has GPS technology. You know, people are working on uh, IoT, 5G, Bluetooth from space. There are all these advancements that technology in space has enabled on the ground that maybe people don't think about every day. And seeing how what we're doing in space can affect how we live on the ground, I think is something that probably everyone in the space industry needs to kind of rally behind and get that message out. I think there's also kind of the final frontier exploration piece that 
is really important. Humans are not sedentary. We want to explore. We want to discover. We want to build. And space is just the next frontier in which we're going to be building upon. Incredible. So speaking of space being the next frontier we're building upon, you at Epsilon 3 are significantly enabling that. And when most people think about um, how to enable the further exploration of space. They think about building rockets and building satellites and building ground stations, training astronauts. Epsilon 3 might enable those things, but doesn't do any of that. You're not touching hardware. You're not, uh, you don't have a giant factory where you're, uh, you know, loading, uh, you know, giant tanks of fuel and all that. It's a completely different type of business. So right. talk to us a little bit about your software first approach and how you even got the sense that this is a problem that needs to be solved. What led you to going from, okay, great, we're making all these amazing strides at SpaceX where we just have to get on schedule to saying, I'm leaving and I'm going to take something that I realized and go build software. Yeah. I kind of go back to the digital transformation of letters, of email, of collaborative tools. And I want those collaborative tools. I want those sort of process efficiencies in space. And what led me to think that this was something that could be utilized in the industry is, you know, I was at SpaceX for so long, we developed tools in-house, as do many space companies. But that is a really good thing for each company, but it doesn't transfer. The knowledge that you learn on one platform, doesn't transfer to another company. You can't share cross-platform. Um, and there are a lot of sort of problems with that. There's also the problem of, you know, you have a limited number of people working at that company. And for a lot of startups that we see in the space business nowadays, they have limited resources. They only have 20 or 50 people. How are those people going to build tools for themselves? And in short, they're not. Most of those companies uh, use off-the-shelf tools and don't build tools to make themselves more efficient. So when I left SpaceX, I talked to tons of people in the industry to sort of figure out what their biggest problems were. And that's how I decided that Epsilon 3 needed to get built in the way that it's being built right now. And we utilize the feedback and the desires from our customer set to sort of help inform what the product needs to be going forward. Um, because I can tell you without any doubt that what I thought we were going to be building when we started this is different based on the feedback from our customers. And that's wonderful. I love that. So the best, I guess the best example I can give is, you know, Microsoft Word. Let's say you have a Word document. It's good for me. And I save it somewhere on my desktop. But let's say I want somebody else's feedback on it. I've got to attach it to an email. That person downloads it. That person puts comments on it. They have to put it into edit mode so they can track their changes. Then they email it back with a different version number with like a new tagline of a new name that says like comments from Laura. I don't want all of those processes to have to happen. I just want there to be a platform where when you're designing your operation, you can do everything in one place. Um, and so that's what Epsilon 3 is bringing to the market is you don't have to attach things to email. You don't have to download copies and forget where you saved it. That's what you know we're making easier. And before the industry wasn't really big enough to support enterprise software tools 
But I think we can all agree that the space industry and those surrounding it are growing and still growing, that they are big enough to support that. So anyway, sorry, that was a long diatribe of things. No, 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 this is great. And Laura, if you go back a decade ago, it used to be the case that one had to be a billionaire to start a space company, right? (laughs) And then uh, now we're seeing people coming out of SpaceX with amazing experience in in starting new space companies. It still feels to some degree that, uh, you know, building a space company requires deep, deep space uh, knowledge of the space industry and also, you know, strong understanding of systems thinking and, and other skill sets. Um, how do you recommend listeners that, to identify uh, opportunities in the industry if they're not domain experts? And do you do you think that we're you know moving forward to a world where we're going to start people starting, we're going to start seeing people starting space companies that actually don't really have that that background? I think it depends on what piece of the space industry you want to start a business in. Um, for certain aspects, you you actually probably need to be somewhat of a domain expert or have a co-founder or multiple co-founders that are domain experts. But you don't have to have everyone be a domain expert. So, you know, I guess my suggestion would be start diving into podcasts such as this one, other publications. There are some really great newsletters and learning about what is going on in the space industry and then seeing where the holes are. Uh, there are tons of books and newsletters that people are learning from every day and space experts are coming out that don't have deep domain expertise. Um, I think for Epsilon 3, it actually is very, very helpful to have domain expertise. And so I'm very thankful for the time that I had deep in the space industry. And I don't know that it would be really easy for someone to start what we're doing without a little bit of domain expertise or a lot in my case. Laura, when people are looking at these systems and trying to get that domain expertise. I think for a lot of other industries, there's easy ways to get up to speed, right? If you want to be a software engineer, you could take online courses. You could you could quickly learn all of that. Um, do you have a recommendation for people listening who are passionate about this industry and want to learn more? Is the right path, go get a job at SpaceX? Is it go, go get a job at Epsilon 3? Like, How can our listeners dive in and really learn more about the industry? Right. There are actually a couple of courses that are directed at starting businesses in space. There's one by a woman named Sinead O'Sullivan, and she is basically has uh, performed a study of the space industry and offers like a multiple day course so that people can kind of immerse themselves and understand what's going on. And I don't think the answer is necessarily get a job at SpaceX, but you know, you don't have to be a space person. You don't have to have an aero astro degree to get involved in the space industry. And I think that's the piece that people forget. Um, there are jobs in HR, in benefits, in recruiting, scheduling, planning, software engineering, everything under the sun that people need in the space industry. And so just looking at different opportunities and finding what you're interested in will help kind of the whole industry move forward. Because I mean, I, I will tell you, I'm, I'm not going to go out and do marketing, but I have someone that, that will help with that. And I have graphic design and UI. So these are all different pieces that other industries 
have, but you know, the space industry needs as well. And then within the industry, is there right now for um, kind of the systems that you're building and how a lot of these companies talk to each other, like you were mentioning some of the solutions that Epsilon3 has, is there a common uh, set of APIs or processes for these different companies and, you know, aerospace uh, manufacturers to talk to each other? Are there common specs where, you know, satellites are talking to the rockets that they're on or, or other things in that realm? So... Let me start with the first one, which is how companies will talk to one another. When people are manufacturing parts, I've heard from a lot of our customers that they'll get a spec in PDF and they don't have traceability of what sort of testing that that part or that subassembly has gone under. And on Epsilon 3, you could actually allow your customers to view that data set easily rather than sending a PDF. So that's something that I think could be improved. Um, On the ground segment side of things, it's pretty complicated for a launch vehicle and a satellite, so whatever whatever the payload might be, to communicate uh, back and forth or for the ground team to kind of know what each other is doing. And because Epsilon 3 has a really simple um, API that's flexible for any of the command and telemetry systems that um, these companies are using, we can allow for multiple data sets to display the payload data as well as the launch vehicle data at the same time so that that company can collaborate in one place rather than I have to bring up the payload data or the payload GUI and the rocket GUI separately to look at the data from both. And Laura, why, why do you think that there haven't been as many companies like Epsilon3 really focused on building software to sell to space companies? It is the obvious answer that just, you know, five years ago, there were just not that many customers, so you couldn't really build a venture scale business. Uh, I'm, I'm curious if that's the only answer, if, there, if you have other perspectives. I don't know if this is the answer that you want, but it doesn't seem as sexy as building a launch vehicle. Um, lots of people really like the business end of the rocket and like doing rendezvous in, in space. And I like those things as well. But uh, I also like a really elegant process. So for me, that sexiness kind of comes in the elegant solution of having a really good process that works for you that you don't have to think about. That's what we want at Epsilon 3. And so I think the fact that we are able to affect a lot of those missions. You know, we're, we're able to work with launch companies. We're able to work with companies that are doing rendezvous, that are doing satellite operations and constellation operations. That for me is, is the win. But again, as Ian said, I'm not, I don't have a factory. I'm not building it. I'm just enabling that build and that operation to occur. That's awesome. Um, and to double click on that, and we don't need to go over the Epsilon 3 product roadmap here, but I, I'm curious if there are other opportunities for space, for software for space companies that, that you're excited about that you think people are not really thinking uh, through or building uh, at this point. I think this traceability from start to finish of the vehicle, whatever it might be, a satellite, even a a car or an electric aircraft, any vehicle, if you think about, from design all the way through to operations, so that when I'm operating the vehicle, I know exactly what part I'm operating against and what testing that part went through, such that if something happens, I have full traceability all the way back. Um, People 
all the time talk to me about the digital twin. Um, I think of this as digital traceability. I have the ability to simulate pieces with different kind of serial numbers of hardware build. Um, I have the ability to test against the hardware itself. And I have the ability to trace all of that back all the way to the requirement at the very beginning. That is something that a lot of people are talking about. And we are driving to be a solution that can be sort of on the, the latter half of a program lifecycle and integration test and operation that can allow that digital traceability. And when you look at other founders pursuing software in the space, how large of a roadmap do, or how large of an opportunity do you, do you see in front of it, right? Like, I think um, if you look at non-space companies, B2B SaaS, there's so many multi-hundred billion dollar companies waiting to be built. Of course, the space industry, like we mentioned earlier, is still small-ish. Um, it's growing rapidly. And I think we all know it's going to continue to grow into this massive multi-trillion dollar industry. I'm curious if you see uh, a lot of other space companies start, or software space companies starting to emerge to fill in some of those gaps. Or if you still think, to your point earlier, the the cool, fun thing to do is to build the hardware. So you still think there's uh, massive untapped potential there? That's a really loaded question. Um, on the software side, there are some other really cool companies solving pieces of, of that sort of digital traceability met- matrix, if you will. Um, I also think that there are still some problems that need to be solved in kind of sourcing of, of hardware and uh, parts and traceability of, of those. And, and there are people that are solving that. It sounds like as the industry continues to grow, there's going to be more and more opportunities for uh, other software angles within it. And uh, yeah. we're very excited to see how you uh, and Epsilon 3 continue to grow um, into that space. Yeah. So and I think sh- even, if you, even if you build software for the space industry, it is extensible to other industries. There, there aren't pieces of Epsilon 3 that are, you have to launch the rocket or you have to send commands to the spacecraft. It is extensible to, you know, uh, we're supporting a hypersonics company, we're supporting a robotics company. There are a lot of other use cases for software like what we're building. And so it's not just the, the addressable market in space, it's the addressable market in complex engineering. If you're doing something where you need traceability, where you need to know who did what, when, where, why, how, that's where Epsilon 3 comes in. So the, the flip question to that, Laura, where is it or when is it that existing software that is not dedicated to the space industry actually fails to serve uh, space companies? Oh, that's a good question. Right now, I think there isn't enough extensibility from other markets in the space industry. The space industry needs software that is is actually kind of tailored to the workflows and nobody else is thinking about the workflows that space has. A lot of kind of locked down processes. You have people that need to uh, approve and sign off specific things. Um, So you want to specifically control a lot of parts of that process. And when you look at other tools, they're a lot more open and easy to change. So shifting the focus slightly to the overall industry, 
Laura, I'm very curious if you take a step back and look not just at software, but the space industry as a whole, both government, commercial, et cetera. What do you, if you were to identify one risk that you think is the one thing about this industry that freaks you out or keeps you up at night, what would it be? The the thing that keeps me up at night is that um, at least for for the startup and the startup world is that this like fictitious bubble pops. Something happens. Everyone is talking about how much money is being invested in space and how many investors are pretty bullish on the space industry. And, you know, we've already harped on this a lot, but it is expanding for a number of years. But what happens if there's a big public failure and people get scared to invest? Um, what scares me is that, you know, space is going to grow, whether it grows in the startup space or whether the large government contractors continue to grow has yet to be seen. Um, other companies, uh, other companies, other countries are growing their space industry and supporting really heavily. So, you know, I I have been um, talking to some Australian companies and some Canadian companies, and their government gives them money. It's not as hard as the SBIR money that everyone is fighting for in the United States. And you know, obviously, we know about China and Russia and their space programs. I think that that is something that keeps me up at night, thinking a lot of what we do is based on how much investors believe this is going to grow and how right now they're not that scared to invest. Um, so of course, that that's definitely not going to happen with Epsilon 3. But <laughs> Well, so uh, on that note, I, I think there's something super interesting there. So you're building a software company, you're enabling all of these others. But if we look at the uh, companies who are building the hardware, like let's take the um, uh, Astra, for example, right? Incredible company was able to uh, go ahead and stack, be on the public markets, putting up uh, you know satellites into space and had a series of delays and then failures that led to um, their stock crashing down. And a big hesitation from a lot of investors right after that, not in the overall industry, but saying, should we keep investing in launch vehicles? Does that make sense? Or should we just go with the old reliable SpaceX? And God forbid there were ever some issue with the SpaceX rocket, that could cause massive uh, risk to the whole industry, which I think is something that's very unique to the space industry. Whereas in other industries, it's kind of, you know, everything is a little bit more in isolation. What do you think the best things we as investors and then you as a founder and all of your fellow founders can do to reduce that reliance on a single point of failure, like um, a large public mission failure or something in that regard? I think the risk is is always going to be there, but I think we can't make decisions on what one company does or what what happens at a single company because the industry is so much bigger than what happens at a single company. So a very public failure while being very bad for a specific company is doesn't mean that the whole industry is failing. We talked a lot at um, when I was at SpaceX about how, um, I don't know if you remember, but Orbital Sciences and SpaceX were sort of in this race to see who would get to station first with their cargo mission. And it wasn't that we didn't want them to succeed. We just wanted to succeed first. And so I think that's how everybody in the space industry feels is I want everybody to succeed, but if somebody fails, it doesn't bring us all down. Does that make sense? I, 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 I love that. And actually that, that leads into the, the next question we want to talk about, which is, <laughs> you know, I think 
if you look at company versus company versus company, we're definitely in a space race in that regard, right? Mm -hmm. Like everyone wants to be uh, the first company to put up a private space station, the first company to do this or that. If you take a step back and look at the US, uh, Russia, China, other countries that have space programs, do you think geopolitically uh, we're currently in a space race? I don't think we ever left the space race. I think we've always been in a space race. A lot of people always say, you know, space is for everyone. There aren't any borders in space, which basically means that if you occupy a, like, let's just say a space in space, that sounds really silly, but I had to say it, it, you now own that space. Nobody else can, can go there. So if you're going to say a geostationary orbit and you are placing your satellite over a given country nobody else can go to that location unless they tell you to move in which you say no. Um, but you see where I'm getting at is like the first person to occupy a literal space uh, is the person who then owns it. And so I don't think that this space race is going to end, you know, the first uh, constellation for satellite internet, the first constellation for inner space communications that is not uh, that is not operated by government let's say those are all things that i think there are there is a race to get there first and within the united states it's within the rest of the world first person to put up a commercial space station etc cetera, etc cetera. so i don't think that this is going to stop and and i think that we need to as the united states continue to kind of reinforce that we need to move faster, we need to be better because we will be competing for space with China, with Russia, with other countries, so. Laura, to, to dive deeper on that, how do you think we're doing relative to China and Russia and maybe other countries uh, in that space race? Uh, you know, are, are there parts that were far ahead? Are there parts that were way far behind? Um, should people be concerned? Uh, and, and, you know, it would be helpful to, to paint the, the risks uh, of what happens if we actually lose this race. I think we are ahead in a lot of different ways. Um, what I think we need to do is ensure that we stay that way. I think we're behind in some ways. There is something that happened with the, the Russian ASAT test that I'm sure you guys heard about back in November of last year. And basically, I think we're behind in demonstrating our prowess to other nations. And there were hypersonic weapons uh, that we don't have. These are all things that concern us. And we should be making sure that we can defend ourselves. So when you're looking at, you know, other countries might have hypersonic weapons. Do we need to develop that capability or do we need another capability that's even better? Are other countries looking to destroy our satellites in space? Are other countries looking to jam our signals so that we can't communicate with our satellites? We need to be more proactive about that piece. I think technology-wise, we are doing a great job. We have a lot of technology in the United States, but making sure that we stay that way is, is I think, really, really important. And traditionally, one of the ways that we've stayed that way is something you mentioned earlier, which is government funding, right? Specifically, FBIRs, many other programs uh, that help uh, enable technology companies via government funding. 
earlier kind of alluded to the fact that those aren't the easiest to get. Um, I think Lucas and I both agree with you based on prior conversations we've had and personal experiences. Can you tell us a little bit about, like, give our listeners an overview of what those programs are and why they might not be the easiest to get? And then let's get into, if you were in charge, how would you improve that? Oh, that's a great question too. So the SBIR and STTR program is uh, for small businesses to either work with factions of the government or to work with institutions like uh, in academia to bring capabilities to the government. I think both of those programs are very good in that they enable small businesses to get non-dilutive funding to move their technology forward. So what's hard about these things? Well, number one, there's not a quick, easy database to be able to find what the topics are that the government is looking for. There are so many different moving pieces of the government that they don't all kind of come together in one place. And then once you find someone that wants your tech, it is hard to, let's say you have to write the proposal and then you have to wait six months for the proposal to be either accepted or not accepted. And then you could get accepted and not funded. So there are a lot of complexities with that. So most companies uh, that are VC backed that are looking for SBIR funding will hire a consultant to actually do that for them. And that's an expensive thing, although very, very worth it. Um, But the fact that you have to hire a consultant to like weed through the different proposals and write your proposal when you actually know all the technology that you're bringing forth, I think is pretty high bar, high entry. So how do we make this better? And what might be helpful is you mentioned um, our friendly neighbors up north, Canada, having a slightly uh, better uh, program where money is freely given out. Maybe give um, a very quick overview of your understanding or what you know about how that works, just so people can compare and contrast it. And then would love your sense of how we as the US could do this better. So I can't tell you exactly what the Canadian government does, but I can tell you that every Canadian company I've talked to has government funding. And I asked them how hard it was to get. And they said, not very hard. The Canadian government supports us completely. And I said, wow, that's amazing. So many of them have multiple millions of dollars of funding from what I gather without a lot of extra work. Um, what I think we could do to make this better. I wish there was a central place to find what kind of capabilities the government was looking for. And I wish that if you had somebody that said, I will pay you for this, that you could get yourself funded much more easily. Um, to, to hit on that though, the, the way you just phrased that was, you want the government to publicly share, here's what we want. Does the government well, they do know already. what it wants? Uh, or should you be telling the government, or should you and other founders be telling the government what our government wants to mean? I mean, I, I think it could be that we tell the government what they should want, but in the short term, they have a bunch of topics posted and you have to go to 10 or 15 different websites to figure out what the topics are and when the submission dates are. It could be as easy as simplifying that into a database and then having an open topic that says, tell us what we don't know and go from there. And then I think there would be iterative 
kind of improvements from that. So talk about the space industry a little bit more broadly, Laura. How do you think that everyday companies will be doing more in space over the next decade or so? Uh, I think something that would be interesting to discuss is a lot of people don't know, but as you mentioned at the beginning, there's so many different applications (laughs) of things that companies here on earth are doing in space or things that space companies are doing that influence all of us. So can you talk a little bit more about about both of them? Yeah, I think we'll... Let me just start with, I think that the general public is paying attention more to the space industry. And I, I hate to have to say this, but I think it was because of 2020. Um, and let's not go back to what happened in 2020, but let's talk about what many people have told me was the shining light of their 2020 year, which was, you know, the United States was then again, launching people to the space station from U.S. soil. That was a big moment for people. And I think people were rallying behind that and starting to learn about what's going on in the space industry because they realized that we're still in the space race, going back to what we talked about before. So I think because of that, the space industry and everyone in it needs to start talking about what the future looks like. What's the future we are enabling? What is the future of what your smartphone can do? What's the future of how you're going to interact with Starlink or other communications satellites? Um, What's the future of Earth observation and how is that going to enhance your life? How is that going to help farmers? How is that going to help track bees or natural disasters or fires? What are all of the things that are being done in space to enable that future of, you know, protecting the Earth that we want to see? Um, so I think that there is a movement to actually get there. And I think everyday companies will see a huge shift in how they utilize the data coming from space or the satellites, or even enable research in space on these private space stations that we're talking about. I want to see that future come to light. I love it. As do we, we want to see that happen too. Sorry, sorry. No, 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 you're good. But when you talk about being a space founder, uh, you know, a founder in this industry that's so hard, what is the most nerve wracking part of being a founder in this industry? I don't know if this will surprise you, but it's, it's the people aspect. The hardest part for me and the most nerve wracking part is working really closely with a team and continuing to connect with them being honest and being able to be yourself and be vulnerable so that you can truly lead the team forward. Being a founder just kind of at its core is definitely the most, most vulnerable I've ever been. I'm clearly married and have kids and, and I'm, I'm very vulnerable with my family, but not with everyday people. And I think in order to be successful as a founder in general, or in the space industry, you have to be able to be vulnerable. So, you know, looking back, you start a company with people that you know, but maybe you don't know them very well. And over the course of a year, two years, you get to know them a lot better and you have to grow with them. It's the same as if you are growing with your, your partner. Um, and that is, is really hard. And so figuring out what you do when there are disagreements or what you do when there's a little bit of tension. Those are things that I think will make or break your company. And I'm just really happy to have great founders that are open and as vulnerable as I feel I need to be to be successful. And talking about kind of that mentality of founding a company, um, if we rewind 
oh God, I think 18 months ago or so now, um, you had left SpaceX. I remember talking to you and you were uh, discussing this idea of uh, a better system and software for procedures and um, uh, other components of software that would enable the industry. You didn't immediately say, I'm going to go start a company. That wasn't your first reaction. You didn't say, I'm leaving SpaceX and tomorrow, boom, it's incorporated. We're going and go raise money. There was, of course, talking to customers and understanding what the demand was. But even then, I think there was a little bit of hesitation in jumping in and saying, I'm starting it. Will you walk through kind of what were you nervous about? What what were those hesitations? And how can we help other people who might have amazing ideas like you did for Epsilon 3 overcome some of those hesitations? Yeah. Uh, let, me, let me start with, I feel really lucky that uh, after we founded the company, my co-founders sort of nominated me as a CEO. I didn't go in and say, I, I have to be the CEO of this company. This is what's going to happen. Um, and so I feel very lucky to be working with such an amazing team. But as you mentioned, Ian, I I didn't jump into this and say, I'm going to start a company. This is exactly what I'm going to do. And I'm going to go raise money. Um, It was sort of a a process of what do I want out of life? What kind of change do I want to see in the world? And how can I affect that change? And after I left, I'll be honest, I was was interviewing for jobs. I was thinking about what what else I could do. And none of the jobs that I was interviewing for really spoke to me. They didn't give me what I think I needed to, what I felt like I could give back to the industry. And that's when I started talking to people about what their problems were and started kind of formulating this idea. And even then I had a lot of thoughts, uh, maybe like anxiety around going out and raising money because I thought that this is something that is unattainable. There's, there's no way that I can go raise money. And I think making it sort of demystified here, here are the things that you need to do to prove that your business can grow to a place where you can go raise money. I think that's, that's the piece where I didn't have the confidence to go and do it, which thanks Ian for helping me on that route. And so for me, I just think that people need to develop a little bit of confidence to build what they want to build and go out and talk to the world about what they're doing. Well, on behalf of our planet and our country and engineers all over the world, we're so happy that you didn't take a job somewhere else and that you actually started <laughs> Epsilon 3 because of what you're what you're enabling. Um, I think another component that we've noticed with a lot of founders is, one, there's a, a massive gap in the number of female founders versus male founders out there, which is a huge problem. Within the aerospace industry or the space industry, I, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but my understanding is it's almost an order of magnitude worse. There are very, very few female uh, founders and yeah. leaders, and I think that's a that's a massive problem. What do you think we can do to fix that gap? I'm not sure how we fix that problem. I can tell you from experience as as a woman that women probably need to be better at supporting other women. Um, I read a book called Girl Code, which is probably not your favorite book, but it is about how women kind of lift each other up rather than cut each other down. It is hard being a woman. It is hard being a mom. Um, It is hard doing all of these things at the same time. But I think we need to tell people you can chase those dreams. You can do what you want. And I know that sounds really cheesy, but 
you know, don't let anybody tell you that you can't do something. You've got to go out and just take the risk and do it. Because as we kind of talked about earlier, failure is something you learn from. It is not something that is completely unacceptable. I think that's something we kind of have to get away from as a culture is accepting small failures. I mean, you're not failing miserably. You can always fail and get back up and do the next thing. And so that I think is is really important to encourage in our current generation and the next generation. And I would love to see you know, people going out and talking to schools about all the wonderful things happening in every industry, not just space, but it's definitely something that could and should be addressed um, more heavily. Laura, we we talked about a lot of things today. If you're someone listening to this podcast and you care about the future of America, American values, and you also care about space, uh, but you may or may not be in the industry, what do you recommend them to do? Well, you can email me if you want. I'm happy to field as many emails as as people have questions for. I know this sounds really cheesy, but there's a, a huge space community on Twitter that is really supportive. And the industry itself is actually really open and welcoming, and especially the startup space. So reaching out to people on Twitter or sending random emails to people who you have questions for. This is definitely a way to like jump in and learn. I'm not saying like go email all the CEOs of of all the companies, but I definitely am open to it. Um, And I'm sure others are as well. I've found that the industry itself is just really great. That's great. And I wanted to end on something that Ian mentioned at the beginning, uh, and maybe you could share that story. What has been the most memorable moment uh, in your career besides Epsilon 3? This is probably going to come as a shock to you, but it is not the Demo 2 mission where we sent Bob and Doug to the space station. Is actually the first mission where we sent cargo to the space station. Um, I I don't know if you know this, but people equate every year at SpaceX to three years of, of uh, your life. And so I, I did the math and it sounds like I've, I've lived five lifetimes in my working life. So, you know, one as a working at Northrop Grumman, three at SpaceX, and now my lifetime at Epsilon 3. So, you know, thinking back to all of the moments that I shared with my friends and coworkers at SpaceX, there was this one moment that I can't really ever get out of my head, which is basically we're sitting in mission control and our flight director gives us like the final go to approach for the robotic arm to grab dragon. And the moment was very crazy where basically nobody breathed for, I don't know, 30 seconds or so. And then finally um, you hear Don Pettit say something along the lines of, I've got a dragon by the tail. And I think that's my most memorable moment because over the course of the three years prior, we had gone through um, lots of people saying we would never make it, that we were space cowboys, that we were crazy. A lot of people trying to cut us down and it kind of taught us this perseverance, this don't listen to other people. And that has stuck with me through all of my future years since then. What an incredible story. Thank you for sharing that, Laura. Laura, real quick, you uh, mentioned you want people to email you. How can people find you on Twitter, email, website? What's the best way for people to reach out? 
Twitter, it works. Uh, I'm at LL Crabby, C-R-A-B-B-I-E on Twitter. Perfect. All right. Well, Laura, thank you so much for joining us on Village Global Solar Punk. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Check us out at villageglobal.vc, where you can find links and other information about today's episode.